Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're spending the end of our year here at Detroit Today talking to a few people from Michigan who've had standout moments in 2017. In April of this year, Heather Ann Thompson won the Pulitzer Prize for her chilling retelling of the Attica prison uprising of 1971 in her book, Blood in the Water. Thompson is a professor of African-American history at the University of Michigan, and she joins us here today to talk about her work now and into the future. Heather, welcome to Detroit Today. Great to be here. Yeah. So let's first talk about uh, the Pulitzer, uh, that announcement. So I also won a Pulitzer Prize uh, a couple of years ago for commentary, and I didn't know that that was going to happen. I had no earthly idea. And so, you know, there's photos of the look on my face and the reaction that I think still now, I think uh, I look like I'd seen a ghost uh, uh, when it happened. I, I'm really curious about how you found out and uh, what your reaction was. Well, my experience was exactly the same. Um, you know, when you write anything, uh, you never imagine that possibility. And in fact, I didn't even know that that was the day that the prizes were going to announce. <laughs> right. And I was actually in a class. I was teaching History of Detroit class at Michigan, and uh, and my agent was calling on my cell phone. And normally, I would never get my cell phone in the middle of class, but also my agent never calls me. She right. emails. And so I picked up the phone and she was just in tears and she said, you've just won the Pulitzer <laughs> Prize. And I just started kind of stunned and yeah. screamed out loud and oh my God, and told my students and they were screaming out loud. And so it was just a crazy, crazy moment because you don't ever imagine, first of all, that your work will get recognized that way. But for me, it was just particularly poignant because the story in the book that I wrote on Attica was uh, was has been denied. You know, what happened at Attica was denied for 45 years. All of those that suffered so much trauma there were told that they were making it up. So to have yeah. that story, their story, recognized was particularly powerful. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about how you got interested in that story and, and in trying to sort of unearth the truth. I mean, that's something that historians do in, in many different contexts is is go back and try to say, well, everyone thinks this is what happened, but really right. it looked a little more like that. Uh, talk about why Attica stood out for you. Well, you know, as a Detroiter, I had always been really interested in, in stories about uh, police community relations and basically stories about race in general. And so as a civil rights historian, I was attracted to the story of Attica because it was a civil rights uprising behind bars. Uh, what I didn't know was that the story was still very present, that there had been so many people killed by law enforcement in this prison that the state of New York did virtually everything it could to make sure these records remain sealed. So the journey to write the book was uh, a journey for myself personally to learn more about the American prison system, to understand uh, what the stakes are uh, when there are police shootings, both then and now. And uh, it took 13 years to do the book. In that time, I think I became someone who understood how centrally important prisons are in our society. Um, so Attica started off as a civil rights story, but really became a story about the centrality of prisons in our in our nation and, yeah. and the crisis we face today. Uh, 13 years. I mean, it's an incredible amount of time. Uh, I've talked with uh, with Doris Kearns Goodwin a couple times about her process and how much 
the subject becomes part of her as she's doing and how much she sort of tries to immerse herself in the life of her subject. I mean, she talked to me at once about how much time she spends sitting in people's homes mm -hmm. because that's where you pick up so much about sort of who they are and, and what they believed or thought at uh, the time. Uh, I would imagine that that looks somewhat similar for, for you in terms of how you work, essentially how you work the story. Well, particularly in this story, because when it was clear that the archives were not going to be the place that I would find out what happened at Attica, you know, realizing that this was still so loaded, I had to do a lot more talking with the folks that had survived it than mm -hmm. I had ever imagined I'd have the opportunity to do. Mm -hmm. And also to uh, get into the prison itself, which, you know, our prisons are the most closed institutions we have. And even the journey to try to get in the prison was uh, was <laughs> pretty arduous. And what did they say to you? Well, you know, the state said, no, you can't come in. Yeah. And ultimately, I was only able to come in because some of the guards who had survived the assault on the prison uh, actually let me in, some of them who still work there. And um, so it was all these kind of back channels to try to wow. tell a story that is in a state prison uh, funded by public dollars. Right. It's, it's almost unimaginable that they would even say, you can't uh, access this for for research purposes or for right. any purpose, right? Well, and that's why, even though the story was about something that happened 45 years ago, I became someone very committed to the broader project of bringing attention to uh, the crisis in prisons then and today, to yeah. say that we need much greater transparency. Uh, we have more people locked up than any other nation on the planet. Uh, we pay an exorbitant price for it, not just financially, but it's destroyed our communities. And the idea that these institutions can do whatever they want uh, has created a hellhole, not just for those incarcerated, but also for those who work there. Yeah. And um, so that kind of became a secondary project while working on Attica was to really talk about prison today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Heather Ann Thompson, professor of history at the University of Michigan and author of the Pulitzer Prize winning nonfiction book, Blood in the Water. We're talking to her about her work, both now and the future, as part of our end of the year here at Detroit Today. We're talking to a few people from Michigan who have had standout moments in 2017. Uh, so, the the subject of the book is about you know the truth right that that uh, people have one perception of what happened at Attica really it was something quite different but one of the main themes in the book I think is is at least as important which is what comes after Attica mm -hmm. this response to it and how much uh, of what we see today uh, in terms of criminal justice issues, uh, sentencing issues, all those kind of things come out of the Attica uprising and the response by President Nixon and, and Governor Rockefeller. Well, that's right. In fact, this was something, even though I study this period, it was, uh, it was a real eye-opener to me that, you know, one of the things we have to explain is why we as a nation became so punitive over the last 45 years, mm -hmm. why we decided to face every social ill uh, via the criminal justice system. And what I discovered at Attica was that essentially these prisoners had been treated terribly, stood up for basic human rights, 
were gunned down for daring to do so. But then the state of New York covered it up. And so as a nation, we were sold a false bill of goods about what happens in prisons, what law enforcement did in this particular prison. And that kind of sets the stage uh, for really this increasingly punitive moment. And, And as importantly, it set the stage for us as a nation just believing what state officials tell us, right. Uh, right. particularly with regard to uh, law enforcement shootings of civilians. In this case, the book documents um, a concerted cover-up, and I don't use that word lightly, mm-hmm. where uh, state police uh, doctored evidence, um, literally uh, snipped film, uh, doctored photographs, removed statements, altered statements. And the upshot of it was that even though 39 men were killed, both hostages, and guards at uh, Attica, and also 128 shot very severely. Not one member of law enforcement ever was held accountable. Wow. So the timing of the book, of course, was very meaningful uh, in a in a moment when we had uh, Eric Garner being killed, and when we had Freddie Gray being killed, and none of the people. Uh, who were charged in his death, held accountable. So, you know, it was really resonant in a way that I could never have predicted. Yeah. Uh, the the um, Let's go back a little and talk more about... Uh uh, this this cover up uh, the 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 goal was to make it seem as if these prisoners were just out of control for no reason, essentially like animals, mm-hmm. right? Uh, mm-hmm. And that the, the the proper response to that was to go in and and you know put them down essentially, right? By, right. by force. Well, one thing that we kind of forget sometimes is that in 1970 and 71, so this is on the eve of this uprising, prison uprising, um, most Americans polled believe that prisoners should have basic rights. Uh, Most Americans were against the death penalty, believe that guards should have uh, good training and so forth, believed in some measure of law enforcement accountability. I mean, this was really the legacy of the civil rights movement. Um, But at Attica, uh, in that very highly publicized uprising, um, the American people were told that the prisoners had killed the hostages, that they had tortured them, that they had castrated one of them. And the upshot of that lie, and particularly the fact that they then stood trial for Mm -hmm. doing these acts that did not happen, um, you know, this sent a message uh, to a generation of voters that prisoners are animals, don't deserve human rights, uh, and in fact, really shut us down uh, to the idea that uh, prisons are uh, needing of reform. Yeah, uh, and and there's a political alignment that takes place here too that I think is important. You've got uh, Richard Nixon, who's president of the United States, but you also have uh, Nelson Rockefeller, who's the governor of New York. They are not allies before this. Right. <laughs> they come out of it though. Sort of in the same uh, same vein of the Republican Party, and it's a Republican Party that we now see on display all the time. I mean, it sort of takes root there. Yeah, we see, and incidentally, not just Republicans. One of the most kind of frightening things about this moment is that Republicans and Democrats alike are scrambling to uh, to be seen as tough on crime. Um, this is incidentally, you know, before the crime rate becomes catastrophic. This is an interesting moment when we are starting a war on drugs 
before we have a drug crisis, a war on crime, before we have a crime crisis. And we, in turn, create both of the things that we're fighting. (laughs) Uh, And politicians, Nelson Rockefeller, a liberal Republican who uh, clamps down on Attica in no small part because he wants to show uh, Nixon that he, too, is tough on crime. And this becomes that moment that now... We can look back on and say, A, this is how we got here, but B, we got here under false assumptions and premises. And so it's it's really time to rethink that moment today. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Heather Ann Thompson. She's a professor of history at the University of Michigan and author of the Pulitzer Prize winning nonfiction book, Blood in the Water. She is here talking to us as part of our end-of-the-year segments here at Detroit Today. We're talking to a few people from Michigan who had standout moments in 2017. I want to ask you about how you deal emotionally with content like this. Mm-hmm. I, 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 of course, have read your book, and there, there, I, I found myself uh, sort of jumping back and forth between horror and mm-hmm. sadness and anger in a way that I don't often do with a book uh, that's yes. that's about history. So I would imagine that for you doing the research and the writing here uh, sort of also was probably attended by a lot of that, that emotional swing. Yeah, I think that's right. And, um, and also a, a really strong sense of obligation. Um, you can't hear people tell these stories and not feel kind of this weight of how am I going to somehow convey uh, what they experienced without um, sensationalizing it, without uh, minimizing it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I, I very much felt that pressure in the book. And it's one of the reasons, for example, the book is quite long, but the chapters are very short mm-hmm. so that people can kind of digest what they just read. Um, but it, it is also the case that it is a, it is a story of amazing human triumph. These are, these are men uh, and families, both of prisoners and uh, guards who don't stop telling the truth mm-hmm. of what happened. And so on the one hand, this is a very kind of hard to read story of repression. And, you know, as you mentioned, I mean, the the racism, the, the kind of shocking level of inhumanity that you have to endure in the book, uh, I hope is uh, is sort of tempered a bit by and really mitigated by uh, the, the fact that at the end of the day, um, folks continue to demand to be treated as human. Yeah. And, you know, on the eve of the book coming out, it was really interesting because that was September 9th, 2016. Uh, prisoners across the United States, 40,000 of them, it seems, um, engaged in a prison protest uh, on the anniversary of Attica right. wow. for the exact same reasons. And so it was a very humbling kind of recognition that, um, you know, we, we need to listen to the people who reside behind bars. Um, they're coming home, and if they're not, uh, we need to think about what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. Do you... Do you feel like this subject matter changed you in any way? Absolutely. You know, one of the most embarrassing uh, personal uh, stories about doing this book is that when I began it, I, you know, I grew up in the city of Detroit. I consider myself a diehard uh, urbanite. I, you know, I grew up at a time when the war on drugs was happening all around me. And I have to say, I 
had never thought about this. Mm. I mean, I had plenty of friends that went away. I had, you know, family members. I mean, it, but I never thought of this as kind of a major policy shift, as a major moment of change. It was mm-hmm. also normal to me. Right. So, you know, on the one hand, I'm kind of embarrassed to say that I didn't even understand how different this moment we are now in is. Yeah. And in addition, that I was also afraid of the people inside in a way that I think most Americans are, even yeah. though I knew some of these people. So, you know, the first time I went in the doors of Attica, I'm kind of embarrassed to say, you know, I called my husband and sort of said, I'm going in. <laughs> you know, I was terrified. Yeah. Which, you know, one of the, the best parts about this whole project was to, to, to realize that we have the fear we do. We have the views we do very deliberately. Sure. Uh, that we are meant it's to not know. It's set up so that exactly. you will have that reaction uh, and, and so that you will, I mean, I, uh, in the times I've had to go into a prison for a story or, mm-hmm. or, or, or research or anything, I mean, it is, it is all set up so that you feel powerless. Um, that's right. Like the prisoners, right? Well, uh, that's right. And, and that's why you asked, did it change me? I mean, absolutely. But it also made me, uh, I think, cross the line between or straddle more deliberately uh, the role of historian and the role of advocate today because, you know, when you do go inside and when you meet so many people who've been touched by the system and you realize how racialized it is and how much it disadvantages people who simply don't have money or resources Mm -hmm. and who are mentally ill and the list could go on, um, you understand that we've got to do something to fix this. And so for me personally, you know, I am really committed, you know, to, to, you know, trying to get my own university, the University of Michigan, to engage in a very deliberate uh, plan to help hire formerly incarcerated people, yeah, to help yeah. educate uh, formerly incarcerated people, to work with the formerly incarcerated themselves, uh, to reshape uh, Detroit, Ann Arbor, Michigan, um, because, you know, we created the mess. And yeah. so now we have to, to be participants in fixing it. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Heather Ann Thompson, professor of history at the University of Michigan and author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning nonfiction book, Blood in the Water. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. We'll be right back. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We are spending the end of our year here at Detroit Today talking to a few people from Michigan who had standout moments in 2017. Today we are talking with Heather Ann Thompson, a professor of history at the University of Michigan and author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning nonfiction book, Blood in the Water. We're talking about her work now and into the future. Uh, Heather, let's talk about how you came to be a professor of African-American history. You're a white woman. I don't know if you're aware of that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And uh, for some people, 
that seems uh, maybe an odd or unusual mm-hmm. choice. Talk about how you ended up in this space. Well, I think, you know, every everyone who is a writer cannot help but uh, write in part about or be influenced in their writing by who they are and, and where they came from. And so uh, my own biography is, I'm sure, deeply relevant to that. I grew up in the city. Uh, I went to Cast Tech. Uh, I was... Uh, you know, in high school... And this is in the 1980s, right? Well, I graduated in 81. Okay. And, and, you know, so this is a moment in the city of Detroit where, on the one hand, uh, the city was, um, you know, to me, one of the most important shaping experiences that you could possibly have. I mean, every teacher that I had... Uh, every person that I met with power and influence and smarts was African American. Uh-huh, uh-huh. um, you know, I was by far in the minority, uh, e- even in my graduating class. And so African American history was American history. And so the way I understood the way the world worked and the way the world was built was not as if this was some subject specialty that you, you know, got a particular certificate <laughs> in or that you learned on life, the side, right? right? This is just life. Um, And this is all happening at a time when Detroit itself was being reviled kind of nationally. And, and, you know, there's an—I will never forget there was the New York Times— story on Devil's Night. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I just remember that really impacting me because it was this sort of moment where I realized that what was so amazing about my city and my education and, and where I lived was completely misunderstood by everybody else yeah, yeah. on the outside, but by incidentally, both black and white sure. on the outside. Um, and so when I went to graduate school, well, first of all, to college uh, and wrote an undergraduate thesis, but then graduate school, um, you know, I wanted to understand what what had happened to America's cities in this period. My first book was about Detroit called Who's Detroit? With a question mark. Um, Because I was really interested in this question of, you know, what does it mean when a city, um, when when black folks in a city fight against things like police brutality, uh, against uh, job discrimination and housing discrimination, um, and then there's a real fight for the, you know, for control of the city. Right. And what happens to a city when all the white folks just say, well, we lost the election, so we're going to get up and we're, go. We're, we're, leaving, we're, right. we're, we're done. Yeah. We're out of here. Um, and and so I was really committed to understanding that history, um, the Detroit's history. And then sort of from there, I think all history then is through that lens for me, which is, um, you know, the history of the folks that uh, that actually live in cities that actually end up uh, with the least power often, sure. but but um, are the majority. Um, and so, you know, I, I guess that's the reason. Um, but I will say that, of course, you know, because I am white, there's no question, right, that I, um, you know, I, I've had a different perspective on this. I've you know, for example, I'm very aware that when I wrote the Attica book that, you know, I'm sure that many of the guards talked to me and I was able to rescue their story precisely because, because I'm white. Ah, that's really interesting. And, uh, you know, so so I think that it's something that, you know, I've never said, you know, uh, I've never I've never tried to be anything other than a white Detroiter. <laughs> right. But certainly the reason why I study what I do, it comes from being in a city that was mostly black. Yeah. Why did your parents stay? You know, you, you talk about that era, the 1970s. It's uh, I'm, I'm just a, a I, I'm a little kid at that point, too, mm-hmm. growing mm-hmm. up. And I remember I remember 
having close friends uh, who would come to school or, or mm-hmm. wherever we would see each other someday and say, we're moving. We're moving to yeah. Gross Point yeah. or we're moving to Birmingham. And I can remember asking my mom all the time, where are they going and why? Like, mm-hmm. what is the what's mm-hmm. the reason that this is uh, happening? And, of course, then I would learn about all of the things that had happened in history before that led up to that moment. But but I also always was curious about the people who stayed. What made mm-hmm. your parents say, we're not going? You know, it's funny because both of my parents are from a very small town in, in Kansas. And certainly this is not, you know, this is not the place where they grew up. Um, but they were... You know, just from, you know, our whole lives, they were just really committed to this principle that you don't run away, you you stick things out, yeah. and if there's a problem, you try to fix it, and if there's an injustice, you try to, you know, uh, make it right, and, um, you know, it's just sort of who they are at their core. Um, and I think that for Detroit, the other thing to really, you know, I, I think about this a lot it wasn't hard to stay in some respects. We have this idea that yeah. staying was somehow like, you know, you people dangerous. were brave or dangerous <laughs> to stay. And and in fact, you know, um, you know, the community I grew up in, um, I mean, I, I then moved there afterwards as a as a grown up and, and, and you know, raised my boys there. And so it wasn't hard. It was yeah. actually I would I would preferred it. I chose it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, d- do you remember other kids? Thinking that was strange that you stay? Um, you know, not kids, because yeah. of course, you know, they were there too. Right, right. <laughs> but certainly, I mean, certainly later on. I mean, the experience that I found much more interesting is being a grown up who talks about stories like Attica or Detroit and, and, and maybe, you know, the response I've gotten nationally. Yeah. Um, I often get, you know, young white students that sort of kind of wonder why I'm there or what I'm doing and, and, and then sort of ask, you know, well, oh, this is really interesting. Well, what can I do? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what I always tell them is it's, you know, absolutely, you know, join the struggle, join the march, uh, be an ally. But, you know, the hardest conversations you're going to have are at your own dining room table and you have a responsibility there first. Yeah. So it's kind of that's been a real uh, interesting thing for how other people see me yeah. <laughs> more than how I see my own work. I, I, what do black students say uh, about, you know, they sign up for a course. Yeah, <laughs> I think they're history. surprised. Yeah, and I there think, you are at the front. Yeah, um, I mean, I think that they're. I think that, of course, they're. They're. I'm sure they're taken aback as well. And um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, my my experience has been, uh, you know, I'm a historian, and I'm at the front of the room to, to kind of talk about and rescue and reckon with uh, history. Yeah. Um, but I also am very uh, autobiographical in the way I teach. I'm very clear about where I came from. I'm really clear about my own views on things. And so I, I hope anyway that what that signals is that um, I'm not preaching at someone that I'm as interested in rescuing this history as uh, anyone in my classroom. And I hope that that kind of is yeah. why it's been, a, it's been a good experience. Yeah. Uh, I'm also curious about uh, historians right now and the role that they're playing uh, in, mm-hmm. an, in an era when fact and evidence, uh, truth, is yeah. being really radically redefined in, in many circles, uh, not in academia, of course. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. I think that's one place where everyone sort of dug in and said, look, these things matter. And, you know, you can't, you can't do the work uh, without them. Um, yeah. uh, but I also wonder if you, feel, if you feel that pressure either from students or from uh, the, the broader community 
to rethink the work uh, you know, in a significant it, what, way? I, I love this question because I think it's actually, um, it, it really speaks to what has been really foremost on my mind uh, being a historian in the last, you know, maybe two or three years, mm-hmm. which is that, you know, I'm a historian first. And, and by that, I, but what I mean by that is the, the work, the integrity of the research, the, you know, figuring out what happened wherever it takes you. I mean, that is who I am at my core and that guides me. But in this moment, and actually I would say in all moments in American history, if that, if that history, if what you learn, if what you discover has resonance and matters, uh, I think that historians uh, should not shy away at all from connecting those dots in the present day. And certainly for myself, I see it as an obligation to um, to speak out. I see it as an obligation to note, for example, when we are sliding backwards mm-hmm. or when we are revisiting things in the past, or even as we were just discussing with our criminal justice system. I mean, one of the reasons I like to be a historian of this topic is because without history, we would assume that this is just normal, that this is what we do. People are in trouble, you just lock them up. People are poor, you lock them up. People commit petty crime, you lock them up for 30 years. I mean, we're in such a weird moment, but we wouldn't know that without history. So I I write a lot for popular pieces, not just academic pieces. Yeah. The Atlantic, the New York Times, because I because I think for in my case I feel a real obligation. I don't think it's um, I don't think it's anything contradictory to be a historian and to be a present day advocate. But the his, the history has to come first. I yeah. think the integrity of the research comes first. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Heather Ann Thompson. She's a professor of history at the University of Michigan and author of the Pulitzer Prize winning nonfiction book, Blood in the Water. We are talking to her as part of our end of the year segments here on Detroit Today when we're talking to a few folks from Michigan who had standout moments in 2017. Uh, I, I want to talk about history and race a little bit. Um, and and again, in this moment where I I think we are reminded more frequently of the distortions, I guess uh, would be the most polite way to put it, mm-hmm. that um, that we have as Americans about history and race. And the thing that, that I'm thinking of most immediately is, uh, is Roy Moore, uh, mm-hmm. a candidate for U.S. Senate in, in, in Alabama, uh, who... When he when when he was running in this race, says, you know, someone asks, what's what's the era of American life you you most mm. admire, and he says, slavery, mm-hmm. uh, because despite the fact that you know, people who were not white uh, didn't have any rights. I mean, mm-hmm. we're not even human beings. The family was uh, mm-hmm. was was more protected and more revered. In that time, and th- there were a couple of things about that 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 just, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> that just jarred me. One was, you know, the inaccuracy of of the, the the statement, but it was the it was the ignorance of the things that slavery did to family, mm-hmm. right? The things that slavery did to black families in particular, uh, but also did to white families. I mean, I think the damage there, and there's there still is this mighty reluctance among so many people, to even acknowledge that or talk to it. And I think he was dog-whistling there a little for, mm-hmm. for voters. But I think deep down there's a lot of people who really 
believe that kind of thing or want to believe that kind of thing. And I would imagine as a historian, that's immensely frustrating Mm -hmm. to try to push back against because I don't even know where you start. Well, I mean, I I think one of the things we have to understand is that the reason why Roy Moore's message can resonate is that, number one, uh, our sense, our collective American sense of history is so limited. Yeah. We don't, in fact, uh, have history as, as, as sort of deeply ingrained in our, our, our education system. It's, it's something that's sort of seen as optional. It's not as important as uh, the STEM sciences. Mm-hmm. It's not as important as getting a business degree. Um, so over the last, you know, 40 years, we have lost in and is that is that a I mean is that a new development in education that we've de-emphasized? Absolutely. History? I mean, we have absolutely de delegitimized, if not certainly minimized, the importance of a liberal arts education mm-hmm. for starters. Mm-hmm. So that's to say, where the the place where you learn about uh, things that have you know no in no value other than intrinsic value right? right which is that you that that they they open the world to you and make the world more legible to you um so that's all been devalued but i think even much more pointedly um it goes ironically back to our discussion about attica mm-hmm. there is a very powerful moment between roughly i mean i would say much longer than that but let's just pinpoint it at you know 1954 to 1974, when we had, you know, a major, major shift in the ground under our feet in this yeah. country. Yeah. Uh, women's rights, African-American rights, Native rights, gay and lesbian rights. I mean, it just there was this upsurge of, you know, claiming this democracy and this nation for everybody. Yes. And we cannot underestimate what the backlash to that look like, uh, how deep it was. At Attica, uh, for prisoner rights, it meant literally lying to the American people about ha- what happened. Uh, you know, at the Chicago National Convention in 1968, when you have incredible state violence directed against unarmed citizens, the narrative that was told to the random person in Nebraska was, no, it's students who are violent. Right, right. Civil rights, pro- even though civil rights protesters are being assassinated, uh, who's violent? Civil rights protesters. And the fact that we, that that history got so distorted to the general public is in part why I am so committed to writing post-war history. It's yeah. to kind of re- resurrect not just my version of it, not just a more politically correct version of it, what actually happened. (laughs) And, you know, my experience, and again, this is the glass half full part of it. My experience going around the country, this is talking about these issues in the smallest town, Iola, Kansas, where, you know, my parents were from, to, uh, you know, to upstate New York. I mean, where, you know, where most prisons are. I've I've been everywhere in the last two years. And what I find most heartening, actually, is that audiences, whether they are all white or all black or poor or wealthy, it doesn't matter, when they actually hear what (laughs) happened, uh, people are human. I mean, they're actually moved by uh, the experiences of other human beings, even people that they don't necessarily relate to or know. So I put a lot of this on an actual distortion of, um, of the past with 
tragic consequences for the present. Um, uh, and and we, we have to remedy that because... Yeah. If Roy Moore can be sold as the as as the you know the voice of what really happened in the past, we are in serious trouble. trouble. Frankly, <laughs> even for some of his supporters, you know, if you were poor, white, in Alabama uh, during slavery, yeah. you know, this is nothing to be celebrated. No. And so it's just it's an inaccuracy that. Uh, I, you know, I keep hoping, you know, in that sense, knowledge is power yeah. and, um, you know, gives me some measure of hope. <laughs> Probably right. not enough, but some. <laughs> right, right. OK, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Heather Ann Thompson, professor of history at the University of Michigan. Stay with us on Detroit Today. listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest this hour is Heather Ann Thompson, a professor of history at the University of Michigan, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author of the nonfiction book Blood in the Water. We're talking to her as part of our end-of-the-year segments here on Detroit Today. We're talking to a few people from Michigan who had standout moments in 2017. Heather, I want to talk about the future a little bit. Uh, you, you, your work is always rooted in the past, but of course you have to keep going forward and do more. Uh, and I want to talk about uh, specifically um, uh, the, the project that, that, that is next for you, which I think is, is fascinating in that, uh, again, it ties an historical moment into the things that we are seeing Today, so so tell us what you are what you are up to next. <laughs> so uh, so my next project is um, a book on uh, an event that happens in Philadelphia, actually in 1985, but but like Attica has deep resonance today, and actually in this case it it actually is located in uh, the 60s and 70s in Philadelphia, which is the bombing of an organization called Move. Mm-hmm. The police dropped a bomb on a group called Move uh, in uh, West Philadelphia. And the reason why it was newsworthy at the time was by dropping this bomb to evict these residents, um, not only were children inside who were killed, but this uh, became a conflagration that took out an entire city block of middle class and working class black Philadelphians and left 250 people homeless, um, really destroyed uh, an entire part of the city. And I was really interested in this because like with Attica, I wanted to know what is it that kind of creates these tensions between police and citizens, in particular black citizens, Mm -hmm. and um, and what did it mean uh, in Philadelphia when at that point you had a black mayor, yes. Wilson Good? Um, and, you know, I sort of suspected that if I could dig into that story, I could, again, try to do what I'm always trying to do, which is to make better sense of 
cities today. Um, and in this case, I've discovered some really interesting things. I mean, namely that, um, you know, 85 is really the culmination of some deep history in Philadelphia. In 1964 in Philadelphia, there was an urban uprising, mm-hmm. very similar to the Detroit uprising of 67. And uh, and in response to that, two interesting things happened. Uh, again, similarly to Detroit, one of them was that there is a real opening for the black middle class in the city. Um, and at the same time, there's a real doubling down of policing of poor black city residents, yeah. uh, those who were not in the middle class. And so in Philly, this led to the election of a mayor by the name of Frank Rizzo, um, a really tense decade. Very reactionary yeah. uh, mayor. Right. And, yeah. and, and you know, ultimately a clash between MOVE and Philly in the 70s that uh, will all then kind of percolate and escalate to this bombing. I'm interested in it, again, because like Attica, I think it's an epic story of race relations. Yeah. I want to take uh, readers uh, into the home of MOVE, but I also want to take them into the home of white Philadelphia police officers and into City Hall and and uh, and like with Attica, I think there's a real federal story here because there is an FBI there and an ATF and um, and so it's just one of those kind of big stories that I think will be narrative, but yeah. I hope will uh, you know again that that job of trying to rescue our past so we understand our present. Yeah, uh, when you talk about the tensions between police officers and the African-American community. I think that for people, you know, that resonates with what we see today. Think of uh, the, the the situation with uh, Walter Scott in, mm-hmm. in South Carolina. We did finally see a conviction uh, mm-hmm. of, of a police officer for doing what, I mean, everyone saw mm-hmm. what that was on that on that video, shooting someone in the back while they while they run away. But we still have all of these, uh, we still have all these tensions uh, around the idea that uh, that African Americans draw different treatment from the police than than other people do, and Move is a, a great example of that. I mean, there's not a lot of people, mm-hmm. I think, who who sit around thinking about Philadelphia and Move here in Detroit every day. Mm-hmm. But I thought, you know, I can remember when that happened, thinking that's not something that would happen in a white neighborhood. You know, yeah. drop a bomb uh, and and figure that uh, it won't kill people or destroy homes or, or things like that. Well, and that's why, you know, for me, it's it's interesting to kind of unpack these moments because, uh, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, police shootings today. And, and, you know, it's hard for us to understand why, you know, why is it so hard to have equal justice under the law today? Well, I think the apparatus for that gets really laid in place mm-hmm. in the 70s and the 80s. I mean, notably, even though the moon bombing happens, uh, the U.S. Justice Department declines to file a civil rights case. Yeah. And so these are these moments where we've been here before. I'd like to see why. I want to see who the actors are. I want to see what the assumptions were and what who made what decisions. But I also want to do something that I did in Attica as well. You know, in Attica, I tried to get you as a reader to understand the guards as well. Uh, because Systems are complicated. Yeah. And um, for those guys who were working there every day, what did this mean from their point of view? So similarly in this, I want to understand uh, what did the Philly cops think they were doing? Um, this is not to demonize anybody. Uh you know, we need to understand that one of the reasons why police shootings happen the way they do is that police themselves have been put in untenable situation. They, 
This war on crime literally took officers and basically gave them a job to do, which was to constantly be in people's faces for low-level drugs and put themselves in harm's way, put the community in harm's way. And so this is a this is a, a, a failed policy that uh, that was damaging to police officers and their and those whom they policed both. Yeah. I'm not sure in equal doses. I think this is absolutely a story about uh, racial oppression and it's absolutely a story about policing blacks differently. Yeah. But I don't think that we uh, we're going to move forward until we also understand the ways in which police officers are put in a position that is never going to end well when they're only deployed to one area of the city, when they're <laughs> always being asked for statistics uh, that are you know, only going to happen by constantly policing uh, aggressively right. and, and low-level crimes. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Heather Ann Thompson, professor of history at the University of Michigan, author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Blood in the Water. We're talking to her today about her work as part of our end-of-the-year segments here on Detroit Today, talking to a few folks around Michigan who had standout years. Um, When you talk about the, 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 the drug war and the unfairness of that drug war, I think we also see today an echo of that in what's unfolding around the opioid crisis versus the crack crisis of uh, the 1980s. And I'll say this. One thing I think is actually a good thing about that is people seem cognizant of that, even as this happens. This is sort of in real time uh, as we're trying to figure out, well, what do we do about opioids and the number of people who are uh, addicted to them? There's this sort of parallel conversation going on about how different the response is here mm-hmm. to than it than it was when it was crack in the 1980s and, and 90s and it was African Americans who we were talking. That's about. right, and there's a long history of that kind of uh, disparity and inequity in the ways in which addict, addiction is treated in American history. I yeah. mean, this goes all the way back to the opium uh, crises, uh, you know, a century ago. Um, but, it, you know, it's an interesting moment. Look, opioids are a serious crisis. Yeah. I welcome all intervention in uh, trying to treat this as the public health crisis that it is rather than a criminal justice crisis or a criminal justice problem. And, um, you know, but yes, one cannot help but just be taken aback by the inability of folks to draw the parallels that uh, if one addiction is a public health issue, so is every other. Why is other. the other a crime menace? Right? That's right. And, and you know, we're, we're in for some interesting policy debates. We have now legalized marijuana in uh, numerous states. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we have many, many young black kids serving substantial sentences for marijuana distribution and possession. Um, uh, we are we are in a moment when we are going to revisit a lot of these issues, uh, you know, with, with or whoever the president is, because yeah. we it's sort of like the days when, you know, slavery was going to be illegal in some parts of the country <laughs> right, and not, not illegal in others. I mean, we're kind of careening towards a reckoning with our public policy, and I and I welcome it, and I just hope that history informs that reckoning so yeah. that we can get it right this time. Uh, are we seeing a turn of the tide there, not just with drug laws, but with other kinds of nonsensical 
uh, criminal justice policy that exists? Well, you know, we were, and uh, I am as fearful as the next person about what what we now face. Um, it's a little hard to see optimism in our criminal justice reform moment that we had in 2012 or yeah. 13 yeah. right now. But on the other hand, I remain optimistic, and the reason is this. Um, again, uh, the people inside are human beings who will continue to speak, and, and eventually their, their, their voices will be deafening. I mean, we have, you know, seven and a half million people in the system right now. Uh, uh, Some estimates of a hundred million people with a criminal justice record. And so uh, this is nothing that is going to be shoved under a rug, even if uh, the rhetoric would suggest otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like uh, there's no way forward without coming to terms with what was and what is in, in I think that's in, right in it's, it, because justice. it's unsustainable at least insofar as we want to have a nation where uh, you know that we that we ostensibly say we want it's incompatible with it so we're gonna have to do something so so what's the what's the mechanism that that ultimately forces this this reckoning I mean uh, the political infrastructure seems sort of paralyzed right now by it uh, even though I think you have Pretty firm agreement on both sides of the political aisle that yeah, uh, this doesn't work. Let's come up with something else. But but what that looks like is well, still... it has to it has to come from the grassroots. You know, uh, Michelle Alexander was always the one who really pointed this out, and I, she could not be more right. The mm-hmm. reason we got this glimpse of criminal justice reform. Um, prior to Trump's election was precisely because uh, of places like Ferguson exploding Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. Baltimore and Chicago. And, uh, you know, the question was forced. Politicians did not just wake up one day and say, you know what, this is really bothering me. Let's revisit uh, policing or let's revisit sentencing. (laughs) Um, This was really pushed from below. It will be again. Um, One one just final thought is that, you know, if you have right now two and a half million people actually in a prison. I mean, there's seven and a half under some form of correctional control, but actually in a prison. I mean, if every person in prison just simply sent one person on a march of the families of incarcerated to Washington, D.C., the city wouldn't be able to move. Right, right. Um, The numbers are on the side of public public grassroots movement building. And um, and I don't think we'll have sustained change until that happens. Yeah. Okay. Heather Ann Thompson, professor of history at the University of Michigan, author of the Pulitzer Prize winning book, Blood in the Water. Of course, thanks for being here and great, Thank you. Uh, great congratulations to you on uh, a spectacular year. Thank you so much. All right. It's going to do it for us here on Detroit Today. Detroit Today is produced by Laura Weber Davis and Jake Neer. Our program director is Joan Isabella. The technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. And the associate producers are Gus Navarro, Aaron Allen, and Ziad Butch. Detroit Today's theme song was composed by WDET's Sam Bobian. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. See you tomorrow.